0: Welcome, guys, to the A, where I'm part two of a series about talking about the meaning of life. You don't have to answer these questions out loud, but let me ask a series of questions, and I want you to think your immediate response to these questions in your head. Do you believe in God? Doesn't God want to give me the desires of my heart? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't that orthodox, or is that orthodox? We begin to ask these questions of, you know, when somebody asks you, do you believe in God, or doesn't God want you to be happy? And they might ask these questions to you, or you might think through those questions. But I encourage you, whenever you're asked questions that are very broad with terms like this, you need to ask a question to the question. Right now, there are people in the Middle East who believe in God and they're killing each other, because they're doing what is the holy thing. So everyone has their own definition of God, right? There is a great group, not great, being sarcastic, Hamas, that says, I'm doing what God has called me to do. This is the holy thing to do. That's their own definition. I have my own definition of what God is and what it means to live a holy life, but we're both using the same language. So I encourage you to always ask a question to the question. When people are asking you questions, you know, what is church's stance on this? Or do you believe in this? Or do you agree on that? Did you, can you, did you hear what happened? Are, are you on the same page? Or are you on board with what this? Well, okay, well, well, tell me, what do you mean by this? Or what do you mean by that? This is why Jesus, as just a great, beautiful communicator, the number one response, number one response he had to people when they asked him a, a controversial question, when they kind of pushed him in a quarter, he answered the question with a question. So if we can... Let's start with some ABCs before we move forward here um, into part two. Here is my very elementary question. What is worship? What is worship? Because when you and I hear the term worship, there's already a context that comes to mind. If you kind of group in the church, when worship comes to mind, there's certain things that come into place. Certain visuals, you know exactly what worship is. There's something that's already locked in because of exposure as far as what worship is. Some other people have different definitions of worship. Obviously, it depends on their worldview. But again, again, the word worship can be very broad. It can be very relative. But let's kind of go through some ABCs here and having the definition of what worship is. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. That's the word worship. Sometimes we think of it, not some, majority of the time we think of it in a spiritual or religious context, think of the word worship. But if we take a step back, the etymology of the word worship is coming from the word worth, giving worth to something. So you and I don't talk like this, but if we're honest with ourselves, there is something that we worship, and it's in our pocket all the time. We worship it, right? Right? Whenever it vibrates or or sings, right, a a ringtone goes up, we worship, we come down, we bow down, we worship it, we kiss it. It doesn't matter what we're doing, that thing rings, that thing vibrates, it doesn't matter. We stop, huh, uh, yeah, uh, huh, because we worship it. We give tremendous honor and reverence to it, so we worship it. It is a response. The whole idea of worship is a response. My phone is really, really nice to me. Because it's nice to me and it gives me a nice dopamine rush, I worship it. I honor it. So worship is a response. Again, I'm I'm stripping this away from any spirituality or any Christian worldview right now. But just for us to have some ABCs, fundamentals, before we move forward, we need to understand the etymology of the word worship. It's giving worth to someone or something, or just to go straight to the definition, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. You and I are wired for worship. You and I are wired to worship someone or something. It's beautifully innate in our design from God to worship someone or something. But there is deviation. There is like twists and turns to life where we try to hunt for something to worship. Sometimes we worship the approval and acceptance of that person or from that group. Sometimes we worship our status, our influence. Sometimes we worship moving up the corporate ladder. Sometimes we worship our bank account to the, to, the, to the extent that we refresh our app 14 times a day just to make sure that thing is going up. I'm worshiping it. I'm giving worth to it because this is where I might seek my identity. I might worship marriage or wanting to get married. That's, that's the idol in which I worship. So there's always something you and I are trying to pursue if we realize it or not, that we want to worship because it's beautifully wired within us to worship someone or something. I'll share a beautiful quote from, to you from a fourth century Christian church writer and father by the name of St. Ephraim the Syrian. He's Syrian, obviously. St. Ephraim says this. If you give all your life to the earth, the earth will give you a two, right? So, I mean, don't overthink this. If you give all your life to the the next vacation, the next big thing, or trying to be financially successful, whatever the case might be, you give your life to something of this temporal world, at the end of the day, we've all been to a funeral, what what does the world give you? A plot. (laughs) The, the, The world gives you a plot, and then we go back to dust. So if you give your whole life to something of this temporal world, the temporal world responds to giving you something back, which is a tomb, which is nothing, which is dirt. One of my favorite dialogues, and it was Jesus has, with um, someone who's asking the million dollar question, is what do I need to do to get to heaven? Like, he is overwhelmed as, as a Jewish man himself, of 600 plus laws and commandments of the thou shall not do this and don't do this and do this. He's overwhelmed with that, but he has a pat down in his head. But he's trying to synthesize. He's trying to analyze. He's trying to condense it. He's like, I want to make sure that I have a seat locked in for me in heaven. So he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to get to heaven? Or he, he asked this question this way. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He's trying to organize it in his head. He's trying to make life decisions. He's trying to carry himself by following this, these laws, trying to follow these commands. So out of all these 600 plus commands, what is the greatest of all? In his mind, he is wanting an answer in which you and I want. Wouldn't you love it if there's these three things that you do in your career and you're able to be successful? Wouldn't you love it if there's these four things that you can do in your marriage and it's going to restore your marriage? Wouldn't you love if there's like these two things you need to do and you have financial success for the rest of your life? We love do point one, two, three, right? This is why till this day, diet pill commercials, it seems silly, but it's still attractive to us. Just do this one thing, and you'll be able to have this body right before Christmas break, right before Thanksgiving, right? It's, it's all deception, but it pulls us in every single time, because we love steps one, two, three, and you're good to go. We're naturally, we naturally lean in toward that, right? So our, so our subconscious gravitates toward that type of language when anything is presented to us. So they asked Jesus, he, this guy asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? How does Jesus respond? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I am sure this person is super annoyed by Jesus' response, because he's looking for a tangible, concrete response, and Jesus obliterates that and says, no, I want you to love God holistically with every fiber of your being. And I want you to do the same to your neighbor. Yes, even that annoying person who has hurt you, has betrayed you, who has stabbed you behind your back, yes, you're called to go love that person as well. So Jesus gives this robust answer, but at the same time, it's un- you're unable to hold on to it. We understand as Christian followers, this response becomes more concrete because we see love in action. We see love be put to death, and we see love overcome death and rise from the dead. So it becomes more personified, it becomes tangible, it becomes incarnational, it becomes real. But for this person, it's not real. He's just tra- he, I'm sure he walked away kind of annoyed by Jesus' response. Jesus rips away the limits and boundaries of worship. What do I mean by this? This guy's looking for this type of answer, write down this, you know, here's the boundary, tell me what's the greatest command? And then Jesus obliterates that. He says, no, you love the Lord holistically, with your intellect, with your soul, with your emotions, with every aspect of who you are. This is how you're supposed to surrender and give yourself to God in love. So Jesus rips away the limits and boundaries of worship. Because sometimes when we think of worshiping God, we have these, we we think this is worship, this is not worship. This is connection with God, this is not connection of God. We love to put boundaries to it. But in reality... We are created to be, and don't, I hope I don't lose you, we are created to be a doxological being. Try to say that 10 times fast. A doxological being. Let me break this down. The word doxology, the etymology of the word doxology, is coming from a Greek word, doxa, or, doxa, or do, when we say glory to the Father, doxa means glory. So you and I are created to be giving glory to the inventor and creator of you and me. By divine design, we are emotional beings. We are sexual beings. We are, we are intellectual beings. We are relational beings. But the core of who you and I have been wired to be is doxological beings, which threads all of that together. In our innate desire, there's a d- d- desire to give glory to someone or something. Because of our weakness, because of deception, we end up giving glory to other things and to other people. But nothing taps into the core of you and I unless we give glory to where you and I come from or who you and I belong to. We are created to be a doxological being. Throughout orthodox terminology and language and liturgical texts, we describe God being, we call God the being, the being. He is the being. Outside of time, we'll get to that in a little bit, but he has also created us to be the icon of the being. So the icon of how you and I are are immaculately designed to be from day one of creation is to be a doxological being, to give glory to God. It's not a Sunday morning thing. It's how we carry ourselves. If we are the reflection of the being who is the essence of glory, you and I are called to carry ourselves in our relationships, in our finances, in our workplaces, even in our own personal struggles, to give glory, and to give worth to someone bigger than ourselves. St. Paul says it this way. Look at the emotions of St. Paul. He's writing to the city of Ephesus, and he tells them this. I urge you, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So he's, he's giving this emotion, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Let, let's pause for a second. Think of the imagery for a second St. Paul. St. Paul didn't just say, I urge you to worship God. He gives it into a more detail. He says to offer yourself, offer your body. When you're putting your body into something, you're in it, you're more engaged into something. Right? If I do something from afar, like, there, like imagine if I come to my 11-month-old baby and I say, what's up, Toby? Good to see you. Pound it. Look at that. Right? I'm offering love, yeah, sure. But he's gonna be like, what's up with that, right? But if I come down on my knees and I offer my body to love him, to honour him, there's a connection. It's built into our DNA of wanting to give worth to someone or something. But Saint Paul's encouraging us, he's not encouraging, he's urging us, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God that we are called to offer ourselves. I want to make this more tangible. Offering ourselves might be, and it may may be a day-to-day kind of thing, and I'm being super hypocritical here, it might be me talking to the person in front of me without doing this. I'm offering myself. When I'm fully engaged, I'm offering my time, my senses, and I'm giving utmost honor to, to, to the person in front of me. I'm, in me, as a doxological being, I'm giving honor and respect to the person in front of me. I, and I know Sarah's going to watch this later and then use this in our next argument, saying you need to practice what you preach. But I can offer myself in that way. How are you and I offering of ourselves? It's not like, you know, try to do it. This is how you and I are designed to be. This is the meaning of life, to offer ourselves If God, the wholeness of God, the Holy Trinity, offered himself and has poured himself into all of creation, you and I are the pinnacle of all creation, and we offer that back to God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. This is why in ancient Christianity, in orthodox liturgical worship, we offer our body, there is a prostration. There is doing the sign of the cross. There's so many physical things that involve the body. But it's not just the body thing. It's connected to every fabric of who we are. Because I can't just say I'm doing something physically and that's it. No, everything is connected. We don't have time for this. But we try to convince ourselves that it's just a physical thing, right? Some people view sexuality as just a physical thing. But the reality is it, it hurts not hurts. Yeah, sometimes it does hurt us. It's impacting us at the deepest level of who we are. It is never just physical. We tried to convince ourselves, it was just an emotional thing, just a physical thing, just an intellectual thing. It's all connected. We get this. We get this. So sex is not just physical. Us just worshiping God with our physical body is not just a physical, it's not just a sign of the cross, it's not just a prostration. All of it is connected together. Worship is a response. I do want to spend three minutes talking about what worship is not, what worship is not, God revealed this to Isaiah, and and God told Isaiah this. God is saying this. These people, he's talking about people who are worshiping superficially. These people draw near with with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is the command taught by men. Like, God looks at his people and says, man, they're just going through the motions. They're just saying the right text. They're just saying the right prayers, but their heart is far from me. And that breaks God's heart when sometimes when we're worshiping God, but just through the motions, maybe just to avoid guilt, or just out of habit, or well, here comes Sunday, so I better do this, or you know, I have a big decision, or I have a big test, or I have a big thing coming up, so I better go to church. As if it's like a you know a good luck charm. And and, and God's saying, You're you're doing it just with your mouth, you're doing it just with your head, but your heart is so far away from me. Can we be real? Doesn't Orthodox Christianity seem like that sometimes? Doesn't it seem like we're just going through the motions? Just saying prayers and whatever the text says. And we, we sound, we, I've heard several people tell me, you guys look like Pharisees. You're just saying the exact same thing that you said the day before and the week before. You're You're going through the motions. It seems so robotic. It seems so dry. It seems like you're just doing it just because that's what the book says or that's what the, the PowerPoint says. It seems very legalistic. I tell them it's a very valid point, but let's take a step back. The recipient determines the nature of a gift. You are giving me a gift. You're not gonna get me a hot pink dress. That's not what the recipient wants. If you're getting me a gift, I'm determining what the nature of a gift that I want. If God is asking us to unite with Him and to connect with Him and to honor Him and to worship Him, He determines as Him being the recipient of how we are called to worship Him. I can't come next Sunday and say, Guys, get away with the censor, let's get away with all this, let's just make it a 12 minute thing and call it a day. I'm not in a position to say that. He is the recipient of the gift of how I offer myself in worship and to offer praise to Him. He is the recipient, He determines the nature of a gift. So when God says, worship me with incense, what's our response? Yes, sir. When God says, worship me with with, with praises and psalms, we say, yes, sir. When God says, worship me in in the altar of God, we say, yes, sir. The recipient determines the nature of a gift. The church gives us these rites and rituals to aid us in worship, but the intent of it is not to be dry, but to guide me into an intimacy with Christ. So if we're tempted and we're distant from the liturgical engagement of the church when it comes to worship, and it just seems like, that uh, seems weird and outdated or culture, things like that. It's not intended to be done by itself, but it's supposed to be connected holistically to fuel my intimacy with Christ. You know, just as uh, my daughter doesn't like giving me hugs. Yeah, she's not a big hugger. But I say, our in connection together helps us in our relationship. You don't have to give me a hug. I don't care if you don't want to or not, but it helps in our connection together. In the same way, you say, well, I don't like this by the church. I don't like, uh, how, like how long liturgy is. I don't like why we do this or that. Okay, cool. But I know you desire intimacy with God. And you desire to connect to him in the most organic expression of Christianity. So let's embrace the fullness of what the church has to offer us to help us holistically connect and worship our Savior. So from afar, it looks like it's complete disconnection. It seems like we're just going through the motion. Oh, this is what you sing next. This is what you do next. And you better do this one. <gasps> Can you believe the deacon completely forgot to do this? As if it's just like, you know, you, like, as if it's just wants to check the boxes. No. All of it aids us in our connection and intimacy with Christ. I would love to share with you a prayer from the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church. And the reason why I'm sharing with you a prayer from the Methodist Church is because it didn't originate from the Methodist Church. Actually, it originated from the first few centuries of Christianity, but it has continued on in the fullness in the Orthodox Church, but it has become a little bit reformed and diluted in the Methodist Church, along with other things. But this liturgical text, which I'm about to share with you, still exists till today in the Methodist Church. But of course, there's other things around it that has become watered down and modified um, for various reasons. But it still exists in the Methodist Church. But I want to share with you the fullness of the text and the theology of a specific meditation and prayer from the early church. And it's written by St. Gregory. Sorry, I'm sorry. This is written by Hippolytus of Rome. He's a church father from the third century. This text, what I'm about to share with you, is found in various expressions of Christianity, but it is the bread and butter of orthodoxy. It has evolved and it's kind of spread out to different expressions of Christianity, but the root of it is the centerpiece of Christianity. It is a liturgical prayer called the the anaphora. It begins like this. For many of you might be familiar with it, and there are different versions of this anaphora being prayed. That's my bad. It's not St. Gregory. It's from Hippolytus. But anyway, the, the, the priest prays this ancient liturgical text. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion and gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The priest, or the celebrant, is praying as we're breaking bread, as we see that text in the, in the first century of Christianity, and the priest is saying, the Lord be with you all. And because you're nice, good Christian people, you respond back to the priest and you say, ditto, likewise, and with your spirit. The priest says, lift up your hearts. And the pre- people respond, we already, we already had you. We have them with the Lord. So the word anaphora just means the lifting up, the lifting up. So the priest, the priest saying, lift up your hearts. Let's, let's move forward together. And it's not about the logistics, not about the technicality. Where our heart is, the heaviness and brokenness that's in our heart, of just the anxiety and pressures and go, go, go life. No, lift all of that to the Lord. And you respond, we're already ahead of you. It's already with the Lord. We're, we're, we're in front of you, Father Nay. And then the priest says, okay, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the Greek word there is let us celebrate the Eucharist. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Let us celebrate the Eucharist together. And then you respond in the weirdest way possible by saying, it is meat and right. As a kid, I used to think it should be meat and rice, meat and rice, but it's not meat. You respond in the weirdest way by saying meat and right. What on earth is that? I still have questions on why we're using Old English, but uh, that's above my pay grade of why we're doing that. But anyway, the, 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 the text of the church uses Old English by saying it is meat and right. Let's continue and we'll connect the dots here. The priest continues, meet and write, meet and write, meet and write. So what is this whole meet and write thing? It's Old English meaning it is proper, it is fitting, it is right, it is just. So, okay, let's connect the dots. The priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord. You respond saying, it is proper, it is right. It it is proper, it is appropriate for us to give thanks. And then the priest says, it is definitely appropriate, it's understandable, we need to, it is proper, it is just. Meat and right, meet and right, truly indeed, it is meet and right. It is fitting indeed and right. For what? That we praise you, bless you, serve you, worship you, glorify you, the one only true God, the lover of mankind. I love this part. Ineffable. Invisible. Infinite. Without beginning. Everlasting. Timeless, immeasurable, incomprehensible, unchangeable. You are creator of all. You are savior of everyone. What's common in orthodoxy is something titled apophatic theology. Apophatic theology means there's no limit to it. This has a limit, right? There's a limit. But why circles are common? and Coptic art, and Orthodox iconography in general, to remind us there's no beginning, there's no end. So we're using language to describe who God is. How do you describe the one who is the being? How do you describe the one who is beyond time? You use the negation. You are ineffable. I'm unable to articulate who you are. You are the one who said I am. So how am I, in my logic, able to use language, which is limited, which is created by man, Language is is a creation of humanity. How am I supposed to use words to describe who you are to me? You are ineffable, infinite, without beginning, everlasting. You are creator of all and savior of everyone. Another part. O you the being, again, describing God as being the being, master, Lord, true God of true God, who has manifested to us the light of the Father. Because some, I want to highlight this. Some people will view Jesus as just a really cool dude, really good guy. Right? He came to give love. Yeah, love, love and peace and joy. He's Jesus is the man. No, but here, this liturgical text from the first few centuries of Christianity, he's saying, no, you are the being. You are master, comma, Lord, comma, true God of true God. You are the essence from, from the source, from God the Father. You have manifested to us the light of the Father who has granted us the true knowledge of the Holy Spirit, who has manifested to us this great mystery of life. You have manifested to us. Life is kind of mysterious, right? Because we go, 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 we work, we make dinner, take the kids, whatever, and then we repeat it until our last breath. It's mysterious. What's the whole point of life, right? This is why this whole series is attractive to all of us as far as what's the meaning of life. It's mysterious. But we're saying, you have manifested to us this great mystery of life. You have revealed to us, you being the creator, you being the, the being, have come down in a real, personal, tangible way, in an incarnational way. You have come and put on skin to show us and to manifest us the way to life. It's mysterious, but you have showed us the path to life. Who has established the rising of the choir of the incorporeal among men? Let me break it down. Hopefully I'm not losing you here. You have raised heaven you have established the rising of the choir. There's so many ethereal and spiritual beings that reside with God in heaven. Of the, that's what incorporeal means. Like you, they're, they're ethereal. They're spiritual. Incorpor- you, you have established the rising of the choir of the incorporeal among men who has given to the earthly the praising of the seraphim. You have given to the earthly the praising of the seraphim. So as the, all of these spiritual beings, all these authorities, all these ethereal beings Honor and bless you and sing these hymns of victory. Lord, you have given this for us because you and I are spiritual beings at our core. You and I are doxological beings. So we are called to reflect heaven on earth. These are the words of St. Gregory. This is the Gregorian liturgy. They send up all these spiritual beings, they send up the hymn of victory and salvation. They're not just up in heaven, these are ours. With a voice full of glory. They praise, they sing, they proclaim, they cry out saying. You know what's the next part we say after this, by the way? Does anybody know? Huh? No, no, not Amen. I anybody know? It's a tough question. For you on this yes, we say Isaiah chapter 6, which is the, the, what, what Isaiah was revealed to him a glimpse of heaven. Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Liturgical prayers brings heaven to earth because you and I, this is not home. We talked about that last week. But we're called to go back home. So we're bringing the language of heaven to earth. You love different things. But we love others. We try to love others difficult, annoying people that have hurt us. We try because that's our calling, that's our invitation as Jesus followers. But our love that we give to others, is not a head thing. It's not like, yeah, I should try to love, that's a nice ethic to follow. No, we love, in the words of St. John, a first eyewitness of Jesus, we love because he first loved us. The more you and I understand how you and I are loved, and liked, and cherished, and he loves to hear from us, he loves to be with us, he loves to spend time with us. If we understand that, then that organically fuels us to love others. You have the authority to love uncomfortably out of a response. You can make that response selfishly, because you Or you can say, I'm not going to love that person. It's up to you. But if you understand who you are, if you understand whose you are and who you belong to, it naturally triggers a response of love. Not, not what Instagram tells you what love is. Not what that podcast tells you what love is. At the essence of what love is. And he goes by the name of Jesus. Last week, I asked you the question, what drives you? And those who are in life group, you dealt with the question of asking, what drives you? Like, what fuels you to get up tomorrow morning and to go back at it? What drives you? Do you need to have clarity? If not, you're going to wake up one day and be like, man, what the heck have I been doing for the past 30 years? So you need to ask the question, what drives you? You need to choose what drives you or the world will. You need to choose what drives you or the world will say, hey, this is what you should do. And you're just gonna put your head down and keep on going. So you have to choose, or the world will. My question for you this week, that's not a question, my statement. You decide what to worship, or the world will decide for you. You decide what to worship, or the world will tell you, you need to worship sex. You need to worship your career. You need to worship your family. You need to worship your status. You need to worship the next thing in your life. You choose what to worship. You choose or the world will choose for you. Going back to the quote that I shared with you from St. Ephraim the Syrian. He says this around the year 350 A.D. If you give all your life to the earth, the earth just gives you back a tomb. But if you give your life to our eternal home, if you work, if you love, if you live, with heaven in mind, if that's the goal, if that's how you manage your time, if that's how you manage your finances, if this is how you conduct yourself, if this is how you construct relationships around you, if this is your goal, if, if, if you give your life to heaven, then heaven will give you a throne. How beautiful is this quote? If you give all your life to the earth, the earth will give you a tomb. But if you give your life to heaven, which is home, heaven will give you a throne. You and I are not of this world. And one aspect of the meaning of life, which is the focus for this week, is to utter praise and to worship where you and I come from. And we sing and chant and praise the language of heaven on earth. And the centerpiece of that is the Eucharist, but it's way much more than just that. That's the centerpiece. But how we live our lives, we have a decision. Is it going to be consumeristic, or am I going to continue to be a doxological being and to utter praise and give worth to God through my actions, through my career, through how I conduct myself? You choose what to worship, or the world will choose for you. We'll continue this next week. We can stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we love because you loved us first. That you didn't just leave us to figure out what love is. You didn't just leave us to give Worship to random things or random people, but Lord, you have come down, you have told us that you have chosen us, you have invited us to a union, a friendship, an intimacy with you. There are no words to describe your love for us, but our only response is to love you back in our words through our deeds, through our actions. Lord, give us wisdom to at least see what are we giving worth to. Is it things of this world that lead to a tomb? Or is it things that belong to you, to heaven? Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray, thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you guys. We will continue this next week.